Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing guest. You know, we have a guest, you know, where we're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, you know, financing, all the good stuff. You know, we're going to be talking about choosing the problems to work on, also going from, you know, really a vague statement to something that uh, has an interesting execution, as well as, you know, lessons learned, you know, from the people that, you know, you work with. I mean, in this case, uh, our guest, he had the privilege of working with people uh, of the caliber of Bill Gates, Larry Page, Eric Schmidt, you know, Microsoft, uh, Google, or Alphabet. Uh, and then also about the lessons, you know, learned along the way, whether it was on a bigger company or on a smaller company, because he's done it now three times, you know, three times where he has been the founder. And now he's going to be talking to us about his rocket ship. So without further ado, Adrian Aung, welcome to the show. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Been a been a big fan of what you're up to over here. So I feel like, you know, long time listener, first time caller over here, but happy to be on. Thank you so much, Adrian. Means a lot. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Because it was a combination between Paris and then also the US. Yeah. So let me tell you, first off, Paris is amazing. I still remember the croissants like it was yesterday. But, you know, we moved to the U.S. when I was pretty young. And I want you to picture like, you know, I've got parents who at the time barely spoke English. I, my first language was French. So, you know, I'm growing up in uh, in Los Angeles with this like thick French accent. I mean, to the point where like I couldn't say or even hear the difference between three, free, and tree. They all came out F-W-E-E, fui, which I know sounds really cute until you realize like, wait a minute, you're in a school where everybody else speaks English perfectly. And so you're just going to be the made fun of kid. So at the time, if I'm going to be totally candid, it was pretty fucking miserable, right? It was awful. Like, like who wants to be the, the like Frenchie growing up in LA? So I did everything I could to uh, to ditch my accent, like worked super hard. When I put my mind to something, usually I accomplish it. Now I look back and I'm like, what the hell were you thinking? That accent is gold. Like you're you're lucky, my friend, to still uh, to still have yours. But uh, but look, part of that is what made me who I am. Like one of the things is when uh, when you're maybe not the person who's like hanging out in the popular kid, what do you do? Well, you you start playing around with your various toys. And one of the toys that I played around with was called a computer. And I realized, wow, computers aren't mean to me the way other kids are. And so I just started getting super, super into them from a young age. And so I think to some extent, maybe I got, uh, maybe I got lucky. Maybe it pushed me on the path that I'm on today, you know? And even before going to college, you were already starting your first business. So what, 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 what did you do first? You know, what was that first day company? When you start a company when you're 13, it's a joke and no one takes it seriously, but they're not willing to tell you to your face, right? So uh, so I, I think I went to like the local Rite Aid and got business cards printed out of one of those little machines and everything. But the computer, uh, the uh, sorry, the company started by just making websites, like nothing interesting. Like there were a bunch of people who wanted websites. I kind of enjoyed making them. So, you know, whatever, I made websites. And I ended up partnering with actually a couple uh, a couple folks who were much older than me. They were in their 30s while I was 13, right? 
And over time, we realized that like making websites for other people is, is maybe a little of an interesting business. But then what's a more interesting business is just making online software. And that's what we did. We ended up building a bunch of tools, things that, that really got some good scale. One was, hey, I want to sell my home online. Fine. We'd give you, you know, 555madisonstreet.com. Uh, one was uh, a suite of tools for schools, K through 12 schools, to be able to do things like manage calendars, manage field trips, you know, manage schedules, turn in homework, all that sort of stuff online. Now these sorts of things are kind of standard in society, but you got to remember back then, none of these things had been created. The internet was still pretty new. Over time, what we realized is software was more scalable, but actually the most scalable thing at that point in time was actually just hosting websites, right? Running the infrastructure, building the data center. So, so we ended up kind of moving to that. And the company game became pretty real when I was in college and we ended up kind of selling it, uh, selling it after college. And, and so a lot of my kind of, uh, you know, when everybody's in college having their fun experiences, for me, it was like, yeah, yeah you go to the party, I'm gonna go to work right now and, uh, and get stuff done. At the time, that felt like a really good idea. In retrospect, I'm like, wait a minute, you could have been having fun? What are you talking about, you know? Uh, but as they say, sometimes they grow up too fast, right? So you started, you know, the company that you do computer science. Uh, and then after that, you know, you sold the business and you eventually joined Microsoft. I mean, that's kind of like a very strange transition because, you know, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So why going into corporate? Well, uh, you're, you probably should have told me that before I went to Microsoft because I promised myself I'd be there at least a year and I'm proud to say I made it to at least 11 months. Um, so you're right. It was a very tough experience. Honestly, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I a little like kind of was spinning for a little while. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of give you maybe a way to think about uh, a way to think about things, which is. At, at that point in time, the head of Microsoft Research was a guy that uh, that was good friends with my family. And so, you know, I was like, oh, well, this guy keeps telling me to come work here. I don't know what else to do. So maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll go work there. And the thing that was interesting for me was I had never seen the inside of a big behemoth tech company. I mean, Microsoft at the time was like, they were the 800 pound gorilla. They were the people that produced all these things. I kind of just wanted to see like, what was it like to actually make things at that level of scale? And I'll say that that year at Microsoft was one of the most informative years of my life because it showed me how, how things end. And if you want to build things from scratch, you kind of have to know what the end of the story looks like. I'm not saying I agree with how they do everything over there, but it started to give me a language and a frame of reference. So from that perspective, super educational. And from the perspective of having impact, how the hell do you have impact at a company where you're employing 100,000 something or other? So as you can imagine, I didn't last very long. And you did cross paths with uh, Bill Gates, for example, there. So how yeah. was it? How was that experience like? I mean, honestly, uh, to this day, still one of the people who, uh, who I admire the most in the field of tech. Um, I mean, the thing that Bill was just incredibly, incredibly good at is having frameworks. This was the first time in my life where somebody started to give me frameworks for how to think about things. So I'll give you an example. Um, it's a phrase that he says, he says quite often. He says, look, People always overestimate the amount of change that will occur in one or two years and underestimate the amount of change that will occur in 10. 
So if I come up to you and I say, hey, you know, whatever, like one day we're all going to be wearing Apple Vision Pro masks walking around, you go, I don't know, man, that just sounds super crazy, right? Well, you know what? Maybe the framework is it's probably not going to happen in one or two years, but I don't know, in 10, 20, something like that. Like that'll probably like just think about the fact that even, I don't know, 20 years ago, we didn't have uh, we didn't have phones and 30 years ago, we didn't have the Internet. Right. I mean, like that's how fast things change in our lives. And Bill was really good at kind of giving me uh, some frameworks that I've carried along with me. So obviously, as you said, Microsoft was the short lift. So at what point do you realize, hey, I think I got to go at it again? Yeah, well, honestly, uh, I, I'm not sure I did realize that for a little while. So I was at Microsoft. I hated, hated, hated the fact that I could have so little impact. I mean, you got to think like, you know, there's probably a team of what, four people who just work on, as I like to call it, the red squiggly, like the autocorrect in Microsoft Word. There's like somebody whose life it is working on just that. And for me, that was just too small. Like, don't get me wrong. I love spell check. I really do. But that was just too small. So um, so then I got recruited to go work at MySpace. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember at the time, MySpace was the number one website uh, on the planet by volume. I went there. Um, uh, as you can imagine, I didn't last. I think I lasted 96 days. It's still unclear to me of whether I quit or I was fired, but it was clear there was not a good fit. Um, uh, the, the level of talent, the quality of talent after going from Microsoft, where everybody's super intelligent, to MySpace, where everybody was, to put it kindly not. Um, uh, that did not work. Uh, that did not work super well. So after I left, I was like, what the hell do I do? I can't work at big companies. I can't work at these guys. What the hell do I do? So frankly, it was almost out of a, well, I guess the only thing I know how to do is, uh, is to start companies. So let's just go back to that. Now, my dad was a linguist. And so I, I spent a lot of time kind of growing up reading the works of, you know, the Chomskys of the world, et cetera. And I had often thought about language. And you know, when you're in kind of grade school and they teach you, you know, like subject, verbs, predicates, and all these rules about grammar, I always thought that they made no sense. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes be sitting around the dinner table with, I don't know, whether it's Chomsky, my dad, somebody else, some other linguist, they'd be debating over what's the right way to say something. And whenever they wanted to kind of tie break, they'd just turn to me as a little kid and they'd say, which of these sounds better? And I would say, that one sounds better. And they'd say like, ha, see, we're right. And I, was, and I figured, well, hold on. If the point of the rules is to define language, then why are you just asking me what sounds better, right? Like you quickly realize that the rules are, let's call it what it is, kind of bullshit, right? Most of grammar is kind of bullshit. You know this, if you feed all the grammar textbooks into a computer, the computer still doesn't know how to like read language. Um, and you know this because every time they teach you a rule, they say, oh yeah, but there's also 2000 exceptions. So then what I realized is maybe the way we learn language is just off of patterns. Maybe the human brain is incredibly good at picking up patterns. And so what we did is we started to say, can we teach computers to read and understand language Again, merely by using the patterns. And it turns out you can. It turns out you can quite well. So what we did is we did deep learning applied to natural language. And if you think about this whole AI revolution right now, who would have thought it was deep learning applied to natural language? So I like to tell people if I had waited five years, I'd probably be a billionaire. But, you know, it's okay. Uh, uh, we, we did a really good job starting kind of the trend. We weren't the only ones out there, but there were a bunch of people that kind of started on this path. And I think now you're seeing the fruits of our labor, and I'm really excited for that. So eventually Google comes knocking. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, you see really remarkable, you know, that uh, you were able to get the interest from some from a corporation like Google. How did that happen? And, and what was it like going through a transaction, you know, with with Google? 
Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So it happened. Well, actually, some of our investors, several of our investors um, were executives at Google. So, for example, uh, Marissa Mayer, uh, I was very lucky. I mean, you know, she ran search at Google and I'm building like a, a search AI company. Right. And so she was like kind of the best investor you could possibly get. Um, but there were some others as well. And they just kept kind of coming to me being like, wow, this really would fit in well at Google. This really would fit in well at Google. So eventually we, you know, decided to give in and say, OK, let's go, let's go do this. And, you know, we had this vision of Google having this enormous AI division and being the whole experts of the world. So, so let me tell you a little how the transaction goes. Well, first off, um, I, I want you to picture diligence with a, with a you know, trillion dollar company like Google, where they're like, let's get your finance team and our finance team on a call to discuss tax treatments. And, you know, my finance team was me um, and their finance team is like 20 of them and PricewaterhouseCoopers on the, uh, on the line as well and like four lawyers. And they go, well, you know, they're asking me all these questions about how we file our taxes. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, we use TurboTax. And they're like, they look mortified. They literally. And then I've got a different diligence call where they go, well, how do you treat the sanctions on Iran? And I'm looking and I'm going, uh, we don't treat this. Like, how do you know you don't have Iranian users using your company? Uh, we don't know. You know, so the good news is, even though they're a big company, they're pretty agile over there. And so they were like, yeah, OK, none of this actually matters. We're still buying your company. Now, the interesting thing was, you know, I show up on day one, I walk up to my boss, the guy who runs engineering of literally all of Google, this guy, Alan, he's just amazing guy. And I go, okay, Alan, like, you know, introduce me to these AI guys. And he literally looks like, oh, no, 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 we've barely got an AI division. We got a couple of people doing this and that. But like, there literally wasn't really a division to speak of. So me, a couple other people, we actually started it. We took it from not existing. I think we got it to about maybe 700 people over the course of a year. And some of that was you know, taking taking different divisions internally and kind of mer- you know redirecting them, merging them. But some of it was we went and we bought things like DeepMind uh, out of London, who have clearly made waves. Um, and the great thing is, we really did kind of put AI back on the map. I mean, all the insurgents that you see today kind of came from those movements. I think we spent order of about a billion dollars in twelve months. And then you saw, you know, everybody from Facebook to Baidu to Microsoft, everybody get into the game. And for me, that was that was incredibly exciting. So what was that time where you receive a call from Larry Page? Yeah. Okay. So I was, uh, I was, what's the right way to say this? I was incredibly frustrated. So after about a year of being at Google, I actually quit. Um, uh, it was, uh, I, I, again, tried to make my one year date. In this case, I think I made it to 11 and a half months. Um, and, uh, and trust me, I had tons of incentive to stay to kind of years two and three, but I was just like, you know, we are the world's best engineering, best technology. I mean, like, honestly, incredible research, but we don't ship products. And I really like to have impact. I don't like to just kind of sit there and tinker with toys. I want to see them in users' hands. And I want to know that we're doing something better for humanity. So uh, so I quit. And uh, I kind of transferred all my teams over. I turned in my laptop, handed everything from my assistant back to my badge to everything. And then I had this kind of interesting experience. We had a, we had a going away party. And Larry Page kind of comes into my going away party and in his awkward kind of uh, uh, very enduring way, he goes, well, why are people celebrating? And I go, because I'm leaving. And he goes, no, you're not. And I go, no, 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 really, I am. I know you're powerful. I know you get to choose a lot of things, but really, I'm leaving. Um, and he goes, OK, after your party, swing by my office. So I swing by his office. and We go for a walk. And this was really fascinating. Um, he's like, why are you leaving? And I'm like, cause we don't ship things. Like we don't do innovative things. And he spent maybe, I'm not even joking, three hours, four hours 
just arguing with me point by point. Here's what YouTube does. Here's what Google Docs does. Here's what this, here's what that. And I literally on every single one was like, you bought that, you bought that, you bought that. Like we haven't done anything interesting around here, right? Like search hasn't changed in fucking 15 years. And after I argued with him for about, I don't know, three hours, four hours or something, he goes, he goes, uh, actually, I agree with everything you've said. And I go, wait, what? Huh? Like, I don't get it. He's just been arguing with me. Like, what, what's happening? And he goes, yeah, I just wanted to kind of pressure test your, uh, your ideas. And I was like, uh, okay. And then he goes, Adrian, what do you think the future of transportation is? So I say, okay, well, let's talk about that. So we talk about the future of transportation for 15 minutes. And then he goes, what's the future of education? I give him my ideas on the future of education. He goes, what's the future of energy? I give him my ideas on the future of healthcare, you know, you name it, like all these sorts of things, aviation, it, uh, uh, and on and on. And I would give him all these ideas. And then at the end of just talking to him for, uh, for, I mean, at this point, like hours upon hours upon hours, he goes, Adrian, I don't think Google can innovate anymore. Um, uh, so why don't you work with me and let's do something separate? And I'm like, is Larry Page asking me to co-found a company? I'm very confused right now. Like, what is happening? <laughs> and uh, long story short, we spent the weekend trying to come up with how could we innovate? And what we came up with basically uh, by the end of the weekend was, uh, was what eventually became called Alphabet. And so, um, so what's funny is on a Friday, I like turned in my team, you know, team, laptop, everything. By Monday, I had uh, started back at Google again. Interestingly, I had taken some of my team that were going to leave with me to go start uh, a company that we were going to start. Um, we ended up uh, just staying at Google um, and forming a new division um, that we kept pretty quiet. There's some press out there on it, but we kept pretty quiet. And this division was basically to go create alphabet companies. Um, and then I spent the next few years where I think my title was technically head of special projects of all of Google. But in essence, what we did was we we said, what are great new companies that that could benefit from somebody like a Google getting into them and trying to solve? Them? In other words, what are some of the biggest problems in humanity that we should go after with with our skill sets? And uh, and that's what you see kind of a bunch of the alphabet companies came to be. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike sieberson to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
So what 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 is typically you know like that process of having let's say like a I don't know, like a vague statement, you know, like an idea of something big, a big market, or the way that you're seeing the future to the moment that you're in the execution of it. Yeah. So this is actually uh, this is actually one of the hardest things in the world, and you know, kind of empirically, that it's one of the hardest things in the world because if you were to just kind of look at, you know, how much do founders make in uh, in Silicon Valley tech companies versus engineers, and you're like, wait a minute, the engineer did all the work, they built the damn product. What did the founder do? Well, they just had an idea and they went after it. Well, it turns out founders make a lot merely because, like. It turns out going from some vague notion to what do you do is an incredibly hard problem. But I actually think it's a little more formulaic than people realize. So what we did, our group was called Javelin. And the idea of Javelin was we're going to, you know, we're going to like take some big shots, right? And what we did was we started with what's the meta problem statement that we care about? And like, can we, can we actually measure it? And for us, the number one thing that we cared about was qualies, Q-A-L-Ys. This is quality adjusted life years. And basically what it's saying is, we want humans to live longer lives, but you also have to quality adjust it, right? Because it turns out if you live an extra hundred years, but you know you're you're uh, you're you know in a wheelchair, that's not as good as if you're running around vibrates, right? And so, so this is a metric we didn't invent that metric. It's a metric that uh, that a bunch of people actually in the nonprofit world use. But then what we did is we just started to rank all of society's problems against qualities. Can't do this perfectly, but the idea is you want to get, you know, the dumb things pretty low and the impactful things pretty high. It doesn't have to be perfect. And so once you do that, you start looking at problems like gender equality or getting people out of our overcrowded prisons or uh, or can I solve racism? What should I be doing about birth control? What should I be doing about health care, et cetera? And there were a bunch of these things that we kind of said, hey, these could have an enormous amount of impact. And we worked on problems related to um, trying to solve climate change, to uh, problems related to uh, free energy, uh, making energy free, to building cities. Um, building cities came out as, uh, as sidewalk labs, but some of these others have come out either in alphabet companies or, uh, or in, other, uh, in other companies. And what we tried to do was, we tried to start by saying, what's the problem? And can we concretely uh, and in a measurable way define the problem? It can't be like, go build the best city, because you know what? The best city for my mom might be different than the best city for you or, uh, or any of our friends, right? So instead, we said, well, we need a metric of success. In our case, it was the city that can change the fastest under the thesis that if you can rapidly innovate, you can learn what's working and not learn uh, uh, and unlearn kind of the, the the mistakes that you've made along the way, right? Um, and so we started to ask ourselves, okay, if we took maybe the physical infrastructure, how can we get physical infrastructure in a city to change at a super rapid pace? And you start thinking about modular housing, you start thinking about lightweight materials, you start thinking about separate the layers so that your house is maybe a thin shell and something else deals with protecting you from the weather. We had all these sorts of notions, but we did this in everything. We did this in healthcare. How can we get people to live longer? We did in education. How can we improve education rates, et cetera? And the key for us was we would start by trying to understand a problem. And then, frankly, it was almost pretty easy to ask yourself, what would the future look like? And here's a trick that like almost anybody can do. Imagine you're kind of sitting at home and you just list out like, okay, I want to know what the future of education is. Okay, well, it turns out there's this really interesting uh, trick. 
most people don't realize that the future of anything, the future of education looks more like the future than it looks like education. The future of food looks more like the future than it looks like food. In other words, if you want to know what the future of food is, do you go up to Wolfgang Puck or do you go up to a material scientist at MIT? Probably a material scientist at MIT. He may not be a good chef, but he can predict the future. So once you know that insight, it's actually pretty, pretty easy. What you do is you start by saying, okay, let's take ed education and let's just list out a bunch of technologies that have hit every other industry. Um, personalization, using big data, using artificial intelligence, online connectivity, you name it, all these sorts of things, right? And now you say, okay, but what is the future of, of anything? What's the future of clothing when it's personalized? Well, that's pretty easy, right? No longer is it small, medium, or large, it fits to me. What is the future of clothing when it's connected? Well, easy. No longer is your, your piece of clothing a dumb piece of clothing. Now it's able to kind of send and receive data. What is the future of clothing when it, when it contains over-the-air updates? Well, easy. No longer is a piece of clothing static. Maybe it can change its design over time. You can start to kind of predict out what do each of these things look like. And then if you just ask yourself, fine, what is clothing that is online, connected, gets over-the-air updates, uses AI, et cetera, it becomes really obvious what the world's going to look like. And once you see that kind of tangible image of that's where we're trying to go, it becomes a lot easier to work backwards and say, ergo, my first step is X, Y. So obviously here you are having a, a really tremendous, you know, um, career with Google, you know, incredible ideas, you know, being able to work with the likes of uh, Larry Page, you know, also Eric Schmidt. Really amazing. No? And, 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 and what an experience for you. But eventually your older brother gets sick and um, mm -hmm. that changes the course for everything. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, imagine like. I, uh, on a Monday, I'm at Google trying to solve AI. On a Tuesday, I'm like sitting in an exam room and I see doctors kind of like sitting there with post-it notes. And I'm saying, like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, where's the AI? And honestly, you quickly realize like healthcare is just a pile of crap. Not only is it a pile of crap, it's not even an evenly distributed pile of crap, right? There's about 8 billion people on the planet. Less than 2 billion of them have access to anything you and I would call like a real form of care. So I'm sitting here as an engineer in the year, whatever, 2024. And I'm like, this makes no sense. We can get smartphones to the whole damn planet. Why can't we get basic healthcare there? When you peel back layers of the onion, one of the things you quickly realize is healthcare is based on doctors and nurses. No, I love doctors and nurses, but you're never going to scale them to the whole damn planet. Doctors are too expensive and there's not enough of them. So I started to ask myself, what would it look like if instead of building healthcare as a service, we rebuilt it as a product? In other words, what would it be like if we just tried to take every single thing that doctors and nurses are doing and just migrate it over to hardware and software, like, holy shit, if you could do it, you could scale healthcare up to the whole planet, apply all the AI you want. It's going to be fucking awesome. Now, it turns out that that's one of those things that's a little easier said than done, right? I wish somebody had told me how hard it would be when we, uh, when we embarked, but oftentimes they say the naivete is what carries you this far. So that's what we've been kind of working on for the last, I don't know how many years it's been now, six years, some, some ungodly number of my life. But, uh, but you know, we're, we're every day making a little more progress towards that, uh, towards that goal. So for the people that are listening, you know, forward, I mean, obviously you guys say, you know, hit it off in 2017. So it's been now like seven years, over seven years, which is incredible. I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Forward? Yeah. So basically we started by 
we, we, we figured if you want to boil the ocean, you have to start somewhere. You know, Tesla starts with their Model S and goes to their Model 3. So what's our Model S? Well, our Model S is we started by building a super high-tech doctor's office. We did one in San Francisco. It's done pretty well. So we scaled it up. We're live in about 20, 25 cities all across the country. But immediately you go, okay, Adrian, but a high-tech doctor's office, like how's that ever going to scale to the whole planet? How's that going to bring about your AI future? But think about what we've been doing. Every day we've been watching what happens inside of our clinic. So you come in, you sit in the exam chair, you talk to your doctor about the flu. And I go, wait a minute, why do you even come in? Let's just build that into the mobile app. Next guy talks to his doctor about skin issues, I build a skin scanner. Next guy talks to his doctor about heart issues, I build a body scanner. And slowly but surely what we've been doing is just migrating every single thing from doctor and nurse to hardware and software until what you realize at the limit we only want to be building hardware and software. We don't even believe a doctor's office should exist. And that's kind of the phase that we're in now. So now we've been rolling out what you can almost think of as our, our Model 3. We call it the Forward CareBot. It's a super futuristic AI-driven doctor's office. And the way I like to think about it is, if Elon has a self-driving car, well, this is the autonomous doctor's office. It's taking advantage of all the new AI that we have in society today. And it's pretty cool. It's pretty futuristic. You walk up to it, you unlock it with your phone. Immediately, it's like, hello, Adrian, welcome to Ford. Please step inside. And as you do, it basically loads up a bunch of different apps for you to play with. You choose the body scan app. It's like, please stand still. It rotates you in a circle, takes a whole bunch of readings, shows you the results on the screen, explains them to you, and then gives you your treatment, whether it's a prescription, a plan, whatever makes sense for you. Let's say you choose heart health. It's pretty badass. It actually opens a tray and hands you a sensor, shows you how to hold that sensor against your heart. Again, takes the readings, gives you the results on the screen, explains them to you, and gives you your treatment. And what you realize we're doing is we're starting to put healthcare back in the hands of consumers. No longer is there somebody standing in between you and the care. Now you can get the care whenever you want. And you can almost imagine what we're doing a little like building the iPhone, right? The first iPhone came out, didn't do too much. So what Apple do? Well, they add 3G, they add 5G, LiDAR, gyroscope, GPS. Well, for us, it's the same thing. You can now do blood tests. We're working on everything from EKGs to ultrasounds to you name it. We want to kind of build it all in there. And the idea is that that's a, that's a platform, that's an operating system that other people can build apps on top of. So today we're building the apps, but over time we're going to open it up so that other people can build apps on top of us. We want to power the new wave of healthcare, similar to how Apple has powered the mobile computing wave. I've also seen that, uh, you know, for capitalizing the business, you know, online, it has been reported that you guys have raised about $325 million, even though you guys uh, don't really uh, confirm, you know, any of that stuff. I'd like to ask you, like, what has been the journey to of, of raising money for you guys? Because, you know, here you are, a third time founder. Uh, fully, you know, exited before, you know, so you're one of those tier zero that they are hard to come across for investors. But how did you go about making sure that you were choosing the right people for the right reasons for this? So I'm lucky in that aside from being a founder, I also invest in a lot of companies. I'm an investor in probably about 350 startups and probably about 40 or 50 funds, many of which, you know, from the founders funds to the, to the you name it, right? And one of the things that, that you get from doing that is you just get to know these people over time. And you get to know who are the people who dream big, who are the people who don't, who are the people that, let's be real, like act like assholes, who are the people that don't. And so for the people that we've brought as our investors, all kind of the major investors are frankly people I've known for 5, 10, 15 years in some cases. They backed me in my last company, they backed me in this company, and hopefully they'll back me in my next company, right? Um, but the idea that, that we're looking for is people who are aligned with what we want to do. 
I didn't get into this because I'm like, oh, I need a quick buck. I mean, look at my resume. I'm doing fine, right? Like I got into this because I want to do something that matters because I want to leave the world better off than I found it. And when you look across at investors today, there's some people who are just trying to make a name for themselves, trying to make that quick buck. And we don't frankly want them involved in port. Then there's some people who say, no, there's fundamental ways in which we can improve humanity. We can leave it better off than we found it using the, the skills that we were given, that we were lucky enough to have, whether that's allocating capital, whether that's technology. And those are the people we try to align themselves with. It's almost like ask yourself, who are the dreamers? Who are the people who imagine a better world and want to ensure that it comes about? When we, when we find those people and, and they see the world the way we do, we usually latch on and end up working together. And obviously vision, you know, is a, is a big one, no? you know, allowing them to, to really get enrolled into the future that you guys are living into. And, and to, that, to that note, you know, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of forward is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, uh, you got to start by asking, how do you sleep? I always tell people I sleep like a baby. I wake up every two hours and cry, right? So um, <laughs> sad, sadly, uh, if you care about your sleep, I highly recommend don't, not becoming uh, a founder because you will stress every single night. There's always something on your plate. But look, the, the world that I dream of is a pretty different world than the one we have today. Today, we live to, I think the average is, you know, mid 70s. And when I kind of take a step back and I ask myself, like, how do we end up here? Let's kind of look as far back as modern human history is recorded. It's about 5,500 years back to kind of the Bronze Era. But rather than starting by looking at uh, healthcare, let's start by looking at something simple like transportation. 5,500 years ago, transportation was not very fancy. It was walking around on your own two feet, like literally, like you could maybe go five miles a day. We did that for about a thousand years. And then we invented these things called sandals. Now we got up to about 10 miles a day. Did that for about a thousand years. Then we tamed horses. Now you get up to maybe 50, 100 if you're lucky. Did that for about a thousand years. And then in just the last few, 200 years, think about what we did. We invented river boats to get hundreds of miles and then trains to get, you know, even more and then planes. Oh my God, a thousand miles. And then, you know, like uh, NASA says, whatever, we got this. We're going straight to, to, to the moon, 125,000 miles away. And then of course you've got Elon saying, no, 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 I got this. Mars, 125 million miles away. So think about that. In just 5,500 years, we went from five miles a day to 125 million miles away, like 25 million X, holy shit. But now let's kind of instead, let's look at, at life expectancy. So pretend you were born in the bronze era. Um, bad news, you had a uh, very high probability of dying in infancy, about 15 to 20% probability of death. But the good news there is that also means you had a 75 to 80% probability of survival. If you did survive infancy, what was the average life expectancy? It's about 42, 43 years old. Now let's look at where we are today. Life expectancy, mid 70s. So you're telling me that we haven't even doubled the fucking number? Like, are you kidding me? Where's my 25 million X? Where's my spaceships? Where, where's my rockets? And what you realize is healthcare is nowhere. So I want a world where we're not living to like 80 and 90, but where we're living to 800 and 900. Like what is stopping us from getting there? What is stopping us from just fully eradicating disease once and for all? And when you look at transportation, remember how it was pretty flat and then it kind of inflected just in the last 200 years? Well, what caused that? Honestly, it was tools. It was things like the Industrial Revolution. We can now build mechanical things. Well, we don't have the tools to allow us to iterate quickly in the world of healthcare. And if you think about what we're trying to do at Ford is we're trying to do exactly that. 
We're trying to allow somebody to go from, I have an idea to it's live in the world later today. And that's what operating systems do. That's what infrastructure does. And if it works, then you might only be, whatever, 100 years away from us all living to 1,000. Who knows? But that's the world that we envision, and that's the world that we're going after. So that, that would be a beautiful world, by the way. Now, we, we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Incredible uh, experience that you've been able to, to have and, and what you've done so far. Uh, so imagine if I was to put you now into a time machine, but I bring you back in time. I bring you back to that moment that maybe you know you were thinking about um, starting another company. You were coming out of Microsoft, uh, MySpace, and really figuring out um, a future in which you know you could bring a solution of your own once again. And let's say you're able to have a conversation with your younger self. And let's say that younger self was to listen. And you're able to tell that younger self one piece of advice to that younger Adrian. And, and you're able to share one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The one piece of advice I would give, if I were giving it to myself, unfortunately, I'm, I'm stubborn and I wouldn't listen, but hopefully, uh, hopefully somebody else will. The problem matters more than the solution. We all love when we're starting companies, when we have ideas, just think about how we talk about it. Oh, I'm starting a company. And then your friend goes, great, what are you doing? Like they're asking, what is the idea? But the ideas can change over time. They will change. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. You know what doesn't change? Problem. If you say, I want to work on making people live longer, you're gonna have shit to work on from now until forever. Like that is a hard problem. Think of Google. Like Google's mission is to understand and organize the world's information and make it freely accessible. Well, does Google know where this pen is? No. Do they know where this water bottle is? No. They know nothing. They know 0.0001% of all information at best, right? And yet, they're also one of the largest tech companies. And what it shows you is that when you work on problems that are big, when you work on problems that matter, you're gonna be able to keep going for decades upon decades upon decades. So I hope that people fall in love with problems, not fall in love with solutions. Wow. Now, for the people that are listening, Adrian, that uh, would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, you can always email me or message me on LinkedIn, uh, Adrian at Aoun.net or, uh, or message me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, uh, any, anywhere. I'm usually accessible. That's amazing. Well, hey, Adrian, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, it's been absolutely great to be here. I appreciate you having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.